Welcome back to the Lars Resort. Still a podcast with me, Lars Watson, brought to you by Betson. Uh, coming to you live from um, a construction site of some kind, it seems today. Isn't? Yeah, quite a lot of banging in the background <laughs> this this uh, t- this morning. Hopefully, it doesn't bother you uh, too much. I feel like, how do you guys feel w- w- we are with the with the football right now? I think between the cup weeks and the sort of half-winter break with the reduced schedule, I feel like we're in a kind of a weird space. It's like the football is still happening. The the Premier League content machine is churning out that content. Uh, but it doesn't feel like it's all, like, all systems firing. But, you know, it's kind of like a halfway sort of, yeah, almost uh, holiday, not almost international break, almost not. But, but... There was some interesting stuff at the weekend. The games that are on have, have by and large, delivered. And I kind of want to head to the G-Tech first, uh, where Ivan Tony made his glorious return and scored. And, and and what an important win for Brentford. But I also I just came away from this thinking. After the game, everyone was talking about Tony. Like, oh, he's back. He scored the goal. Oh, Tony this, Tony that. If you're Neil Mopé, are you not slightly annoyed with that? Because Neil Mopé scored just a brilliant game-winning goal. Just brilliant, brilliant stuff. And everyone knows the trouble he's had. It feels like almost every person in the universe, very much including myself, has made jokes about Mopé's lack of scoring prowess. And, And then he scores that winning goal in a game of just huge importance to the club. And everyone's talking about Ivan Tony moving the foam. And, uh, and all this sort of stuff. I mean, I'd be a little bit annoyed. But yeah, massive for Brentford. Uh, eight defeats in the last nine. Uh, before that, that's obviously something you have to take pretty seriously. But but again, I they have like the six best XG difference in the league. Like, they will be fine. But having Tony up there to help convert some of that XG into actual G, uh, I think it's going to help them quite a lot. Which again is why I don't see them selling him now in January, or it would have to take a pretty crazy fee. And and, and is someone going to pay a crazy fee uh, for an Ivan Tony who is 27, turns 28 in March? Not convinced. I'm not sure who that move really makes sense for right now. Now, I believe he has 18 months left on his contract. Uh, so there have been some reports that he's negotiating maybe a new deal uh, with a suitable release clause. You know, that could make sense for everyone. But for now, 18 months left on that deal. Now, that makes me think that a move in the summer could be more sensible if he's ambitious and wants to go to a bigger club, all this. Gives Brentford some time to put a succession plan in place there. Um, They wouldn't have to try to replace him in January, which is notoriously difficult. And like I said, I'm not worried about them going down, but they have to take their league position seriously. And then Tony can spend half a season, score some goals, show some appreciation for the fact that they've stuck by him and all of that, and and then move on in the summer. That seems to have a nice sort of neat um, possible resolution here. Now, um, we have we have something unusual at the Lars Resort today not just the man banging in the background that is quite unusual but it's been going on for so long i kind of gave up hope that it would stop soon uh, but yeah no i've got i've gotten hold of some audio and, and this is i think this is a bit of a scoop for the large resort we have a message we have a message from nottingham forest after that game we, 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 let's listen to the message no well that doesn't sound good mm. oh dear Yep, still going. So yeah, bad times for Nottingham Forest. They they have written, they have written to PGMOL. Uh, Nottingham Forest would like to speak to the manager, please. 
Just <laughs> and it, it is is one of my least favorite trends of the season. I have to say, is clubs sort of performatively writing to PGML when they're unhappy with the uh, the refereeing decision. And I think, for the sake of balance here, the PGMOL should start complaining to clubs when their players like miss a shot or mess up a pass or make any of a thousand mistakes that footballers make all the time. Sternly worded letters should be heading their way from the PGMOL. Official complaints uh, should be made. E either that, or, or maybe a points deduction, I think. Just an immediate points deduction for the clubs who engage in this sort of childish nonsense. M maybe that's too draconian. Eh? Maybe uh, some kind of happy middle ground uh, could be reached that if you want to keep writing these infantile letters, uh, which they always make public, of course, uh, at least they make public the fact that they have complained, you know, oh, the complaint is coming, uh, because we know, of course, this has got nothing to do with improving the refereeing standard, it's just them uh, wanting to put pressure on referees, feeding the angry mob online, just behaving like babies overall. Uh, so, so how about this for rule change? Every club that writes these sort of nonsensical performative letters to PGMOL and immediately tells all the media about it, how about they have to legally change their name to Crybaby FC for at least a year? Like, all the branding, everything. We would have to have a numerical system, Crybaby 1, Crybaby 2, because it seems like more clubs insist on doing it. Like, it's just such nonsense. I definitely think there should and needs to be some kind of constructive dialogue between the club and the referees and refereeing authorities so that everyone kind of are on the same page of how the game is being managed and what to expect and all this sort of stuff. I think that's a good and necessary thing. But this whinging that we're seeing, it's just not conducive to anything it cannot possibly uh make the job easier for the referees it cannot possibly make uh, the referees better it will not get better decisions and the clubs know this very well they don't care they, they're more than happy to be part of the problem uh, for their own purposes now that uh, is is my own crybaby fc whinge over for now on that particular subject and uh, have more to say but you know what i'd have to breach the golden rule here at the Lars resort and we will not do that not today not Ever. And, and also on Forest. Now, I'm a little bit late to this party, I have to confess, but I have to recommend Daniel Taylor's piece in The Athletic from earlier in January about how the club has been run. Some of this stuff is a little bit jaw-dropping. It is easy to have sympathy with this FFP case uh, Forrest have been slapped with. Or actually, it's called, it's called PSR in the Premier League. It's not FFP. We're used to FFP. It kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit, but it's PSR because instead of financial fair play, it stands for profit and sustainability rules, which I have to say I like a lot more. Uh, I think I always thought linking the rules to financial fair play as a concept was stupid from like a PR perspective because it's not necessarily there to make it fair. It's, it's there to protect clubs from themselves and keep them from spending more money than they actually have. That's the primary purpose of these rules. So profit and sustainability rules, that just kind of makes a little bit more sense. Anyway, Forrest are in breach. They've been sent to the independent uh, commission, or there's going to be an independent commission to determine what the punishment will be. And as I understand it, they would not have been in breach if they had sold Brennan Johnson earlier in the summer because of how accounting works, right? And that does seem a little absurd. Uh, they did get the money in, which brought them inside the scope of the rules. They just got it at the wrong point in the summer, like um, two months uh, too late or something like this. Now, in general... I tend to think with these cases that every club in the Premier League has signed up to a set of rules. They all know what those rules are. And in fact, the Premier League is a members club, so the rules aren't being like imposed on them by someone else. It's a set of rules they've all agreed to. So if you breach them, if you, you can't follow these rules, bad news for you. Like you're, you're a big and wealthy company. You can afford to hire people who know how the rules work and can inform like what decisions you can make and what you can't make. 
And if you still manage to mess that up and you overspend, you should be punished, honestly. And I think a points deduction is appropriate because spending more money on your squad than the rules say you're allowed to and the rules that you have signed up to, that obviously gives you an unfair sporting advantage. So it should have a sporting consequence. All of this is fine. But in this specific case, you know, Forrest sold Brennan Johnson on the 1st of September. If they had sold him on June the 30th or before that, they would have stayed within the rules. And I think that's... You know, that kind of seems a bit dumb. Well, maybe it would make sense for these accounting deadlines to follow the transfer window, maybe? Because, like, transfers in and out have such a huge effect on the club's finances. Anyway, Forrest knew what the rules were. They ended up breaking them. And there are some pretty stunning details in this Daniel Taylor piece. Uh, I think we've all noticed that Forrest's transfer activities have been a bit chaotic, no? Like, when they signed all the fullbacks, just all the fullbacks and stuff like that. Um, and some players have been good... Uh, so some of this I'm a big Taiwai Wani fan uh, Morgan Gibbs White is a lovely player uh, Danilo looks good like they're good players there but it's always been a little bit chaotic and I'm, I'm guessing it maybe shouldn't come as a surprise then to learn that the owner Evangelos Marinakis uh, famously a, a bit of a rogue operator that uh, he has given his son who's 24 years old some kind of vague roaming sporting director role that seems suboptimal to me. That seems like one of those things that shouldn't really, really be happening. And some details in this article by Daniel Taylor uh, that just kind of boggled the mind. Uh, the owner's son was behind the very unsuccessful and expensive signing of Jesse Lingard. Lingard was put on a huge, huge salary, massive contract. And Marinakis Jr. Uh, insisted that he got to break the news on his own social media account. The club's official account cannot cannot break this. It needs to go on his social. Very, very serious behavior. Uh, from the most junior sporting director, and uh, when they brought in Chris Wood, I mean, this kind of explodes my brain. Like, if 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 you're a team trying to avoid relegation from the Premier League, having Chris Wood in your team is not a terrible idea. I don't hate Chris Wood as a concept, but they signed him on loan. Yeah, good, but with a clause that if he made the matchday squad three times, it would trigger a mandatory purchase of fifteen million pounds, and put him on a hundred grand a week contract. What now? I I get the sort of loan with a mandatory option, the mandatory buy that's triggered by a thing. Maybe they were trying to move that money. I, was like, I, I don't know what they were doing. That's fair enough. Chris Wood for fifteen million. If they're if you're a bit desperate, maybe. But hundred grand a week, and 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 we know that Lingard's salary was sort of in the region of a hundred grand a week as well, more than that. So I gotta say, if you commit to paying Chris Wood and Jesse Lingard a combined two hundred grand a week, I mean, I'm sorry, it's gonna be very hard to find anyone who feels very sorry for you if you have some FFP problems after that, right? Good lord, Harry Arter is still there. That's the thing that's happening. Like he hasn't he hasn't played for them for three years and he's still on forty grand a week. Like God bless Daniel Taylor, he did the maths and figured that Harry Arter has made six million pounds off of Forrest since the last time he played a game for them. I mean, that's incredible. We don't blame him, of course. I mean, no one forced them to sign the contract, but, like, how does that happen? So, I, I guess we've all looked at Forrest's spending at some point and just thought, well, this seems weird uh, about a lot of it. And, yeah, turns out a lot of it's weird. And just just four points ahead of Luton now, Nottingham Forest, just kind of with the possibility of a points deduction coming their way, maybe we get an interesting relegation battle after all. Mm. Now, of course, according to the Premier League, that case, along with the new case against Everton, has been referred to the chair of the judicial panel who will appoint a commission to determine the appropriate sanction, is what they're saying. And this, again, I feel is... 
where I have some sympathy with the fans of the clubs, again, my base position is, you know what the rules are, follow them. If they, if you don't follow them, get punished. But there is something about this process that just doesn't feel very satisfactory. I feel like there should be more transparency, more some kind of transparency in that more tangible way of knowing what the sanctions will be. The sort of, well, we're going to create a committee and they'll come up with something. Like, that, that doesn't feel great as a way to solve these situations, does it? I uh, don't love that. Um, I, I'm enormously in favor of the Premier League getting serious about enforcing the rules, uh, about handing down serious punishments. But I think it would be good if the criteria for those punishments were a little bit more clear and um, and open to people to understand and not just something that a uh, random committee is going to figure out. Hopefully something that can figure out in the future. And the best thing would be if they could have something closer to what La Liga has, which is that they monitor the club's spending in real time. And actually, when you're registering a new player, when you make a signing and you register him, you have to like kind of put it into the machine, and the machine will tell you like, no, you've spent too much, you're not allowed. So this this doesn't it doesn't come back on you several years down the line. Like you have to clear things up immediately. I just think that gives you a much tidier situation because we're here a couple of years later in some cases, and 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 a commission will determine. And it's, I don't, you know, yeah, I don't love the process. I do love the fact that the Premier League are enforcing the rules, right? Because if you were relegated by a couple of points one of your rivals spending more than they were allowed to and breaking the rules. Like, that, that that's a big deal to you. It might not seem like a big deal to fans of that club a couple of years later, but, you know, that this stuff matters, and I think there should be uh, punishments. Now, I've said this before. I hope I don't need to say it again. Stop comparing it to the Man City thing. Like, honestly, stop doing the, oh, they're happy to punish the small clubs, but they protect the big ones. Like, you got to understand, like, trying to establish uh, 115 charges, isn't it? some of which allege that City have basically been cooking the books, like, that's going to be a little bit more complicated to, to prove and to establish conclusively than just kind of looking at a set of accounts and then looking at the rules and then figuring out that the numbers here don't add up. Like, one of those things takes a long time and a lot of lawyers. Uh, the other one, slightly less so. So the processes there are going to be wildly different. One of them's going to take a lot of time and... I find it very difficult to even talk seriously about the City case because there's just so much that isn't in the public domain. And I, I just kind of hope if they get acquitted, I hope they're acquitted not because of a technicality or because they, 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 they lawyer their way, out, their way out of it, but because credible evidence uh, of their innocence can be presented to the public because I think a lot of people in the public have kind of made up their mind already about the case. Um, but of course, if the charges stick, if they're conclusively found to have broken the rules in the manner of which the Premier League thinks they have, uh, their consequences have to be very, very serious. And we will spend more on time on that when there is something to spend time on, I think. Um, yeah, Hendo update now <laughs> on a more cheerful note. Jordan Henderson has joined Ajax, which is lovely, isn't it? Like, this is exactly the kind of move, if he had done it in the summer, we would have said, great. Good, good for you, Endo. <laughs> he gets to play for, you know, one of the great historic European teams. He gets to spend some time abroad in one of the great European cities. The, on the pitch should be an interesting challenge. The Air Divisi maybe slightly less physical and chaotic, so better for, for his physical state in the next couple of years, uh, however long he ends up staying. Um, you know, he is a pretty tidy passer of the ball. Maybe he can fit into that kind of... We don't know. Seems like a perfect place for a player like him to spend some time towards the end of his career, right? But something did happen between now <laughs> and and this summer. And listen, we talked a lot about it the other day, so we're not going to go massive on it again. But 
this move just reminds me of another thing that Jordan Henderson said after joining Al Etifak that I just couldn't work out and couldn't make sense of. He was asked if he had other options, if he had other offers. And he said, I'm at the later stage of my career and I want to be happy playing football. I want to play. I don't want to be sitting on the bench and coming on for 10 minutes in games. And I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Then he also said, I think a lot of clubs would have known there was a possibility of me leaving because it was speculated over the summer. I'd love to sit here and say that every club under the sun was wanting me, but the reality was that they weren't. So it was kind of presented by him almost as if you know, it was it was Saudi Arabia or the job center for Henderson. You know, off to the job center he goes. Sad, sad Henderson. Whereas, whereas of course, what we see is that when a player who's had his career, we see this now, when a player who has his career is still only 33, if he switches on the bat signal, like the, the Hendo signal lights up the sky, like, God, get me out of Bahrain. I don't want to keep driving over this bridge. Uh, it, it turns out there are quite a lot of appealing options for him out there. I'm not a huge fan, but what do I know? Seems clubs were hyped for Hendo. Now, uh, the opportunities were there. So so this idea that he just absolutely had to sell out to the Saudis, like, I don't buy that at all. Um, it's been suggested that he should get some credit now for realizing this was a bad idea and reversing course. I, I don't know. Like If he comes out and says, actually, turns out being a PR tool for a regime that decapitates people and where gay people are whipped and sent to prison, maybe that's not a great look for me. That's that's not good. I don't I don't want to be part of that. If he says that, then okay, that's a U-turn. Like if he donates his earnings from the period to charities or like does something to actually like show, okay, yeah, I realized this was dumb and I was badly advised and all of this. So far, it seems he mostly thought it was too hot and a bit shit, which is not the same thing. Like, that's not a U-turn. That's like selling out and discovering that it wasn't really worth it. That's a different type of thing. Anyway, here we are. Uh, probably already spent too much time on the Hendo saga. And maybe there's more to come. We will keep an eye on his adventures in, uh, in Amsterdam. And actually, speaking of money, will be interesting to see if he actually gets any, because according to the Telegraph, he hasn't been paid yet. According to them, he deferred his salary payments uh, for tax reasons, apparently. And as we've said before, Saudi clubs are notorious for not fulfilling their contractual obligations. Uh, the International Players Union, FIFPRO, has warned its members against going there because they just don't, you know, stick to their contracts. Now, I tend to think it would be pretty bad PR for them if a name like Henderson got burned in that way. I think his fame kind of protects him a little bit. But it's certainly an awkward conversation to have. It'll be like, hey, guys... I know I just kind of left six months into a three-year deal and that I let it be known to the world that it was a bit shit. How about that money you owe me, though, huh? What's what's happening there? I mean, that that's going to be a fun one for, for, for Henderson's agent, I think, to, to figure out. What a tale. The Ballad of, of Hendo, Sir Hendo of Arabia. Um, uh, he'll be much better off in Amsterdam. Famously, nothing bad ever happens to English people who go to Amsterdam. That always works out fine. Um... Anyway, um, don't really have a link for this, but the special one, Mourinho, he's on the market. Jose Mourinho has been sacked at Roma. It's another one of those very typically Mourinho stories. Uh, he hasn't done that well. The team are in ninth. They're playing terrible football. Yet you still have like a portion of the fan base who thinks he's a messiah and are crying. There were tears. I'm like, oh, mister, mister. And it's a remarkable thing to see. And, and Mourinho's capacity for demagoguery, like, I'm being flippant here, but, like, maybe it's a good thing for Europe and the world that Mourinho decided that football was his thing rather than, like, I don't know, politics. Kind of feel like Portugal would have left the EU by now if Mourinho had taken a slightly different path. Anyway, he's on the market. And, uh, and where is he going? 
Inevitably, he's been linked to a move to Saudi Arabia. Apparently, he's turned that down for now. Uh, story in Italy is that he's going to meet with the owner of Napoli. So maybe that's the thing that's happening. Uh, I, I, I tend to think his dream job would actually be the Portuguese national team. Of course, Roberto Martinez doing too good a job there for a change to, change to make sense. But of course, there is another possibility. And um, not for the first time on this pod, I'm indebted to Ken Early of the Second Captains podcast for flagging this up. There is a club in England that is very special to Mr. Jose Mourinho. And uh, I have a quote here. That this is his own words, he said. It's a club I feel connection with because of Mr. Robson. It's as simple as that. He had a huge passion for Newcastle and his area, Durham. He had it in his heart. So through him, I became a little magpie. Mourinho, of course, started his journey in football as Sir Bobby Robson's translator. So that makes a lot of sense. Jose Mourinho is a little magpie. Now, Mourinho had worked in England for many years, and I don't believe he had previously declared himself a little magpie uh, before this. Now, when did he say this? He said this in September 2020. What was going on then? Well, that's when the Premier League had initially blocked the attempted Saudi purchase of Newcastle United. But of course, Newcastle executives were seeking legal advice and exploring ways of forcing the takeover through so they could all get paid. So, you know, after all of these years of working in England, now with the Saudi Public Wealth Fund just kind of circling and threatening to make Newcastle the richest club in the world, Jose felt very strongly that deep down, he is a little magpie. And who can blame him? Who can blame him with that sort of that sort of potential payday in the future? Actually, back in August last year, I also noticed this. Jose had joined the board of directors at Saudi Arabia's Mod Sports Academy. Yeah. What is the Mod Sports Academy, which I'm almost definitely mispronouncing? Well, I went on their website where Mourinho, he features pretty prominently here, board member Mourinho, and it says, I'm reading, in line with Saudi Vision 2030 to contribute and to support the development of the sports sector in the kingdom, Mod Academy was launched in July 2020 by the Saudi sports minister uh, at an official ceremony as the largest national project to identify and develop sports talent in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. This is a quote here from the CEO, Abdullah Hamad, who says, We will create an ideal environment for your children to live their lives normally, in the best conditions, under direct supervision. I am a huge fan of children living their lives normally, in the best conditions, under direct supervision. I think that's, that's, that's what we want. Now, I, I have to say, I do wonder how many board meetings Mourinho has been to here. Uh, for a man who's quite prominently featured on the website. Maybe that's why it went wrong at, at Roma. He was distracted. He he spent so much time uh, on his job as a board member at this academy, doing his best to create an, an ideal environment for children to live their lives normally in the best conditions under direct supervision. You know, this is a big job uh, for, for Mourinho. Anyway, what we've seen of Saudi Newcastle so far... I would describe as annoyingly sensible. They haven't done anything crazy. Do I think that Dan Ashworth, the sporting director, and the people running the club day-to-day would think that hiring Mourinho would be a good idea? No, I do not think that. I think they're smart people. Do I think the Saudis owning the club would be excited? Yes, I do. I do think that. I think they would be very excited at the possibility at the special one turning up. Uh, So we'll see. Uh, which one, uh, maybe maybe some Mourinho charm is coming to the northeast. I don't particularly think that'll happen. But, uh, but, but it does bring us to the question, is Eddie Howe in trouble there? And how much trouble is he in? I still think no. I, I think he should have credit in the bank because they're ahead of schedule, because of all the problems we've spoken about for so long. But they won two games in the last ten. 
in all competitions. And, and, and they're becoming a bit of a statistical oddity, actually, because Newcastle have conceded the fourth highest XG of any team in the Premier League this season, out of all of them. Uh, they, 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 I mean, that's, that sounds crazy. Uh, for, for sure, but the numbers are from FB Ref, who get their stuff from Opta, so you know should be above board. But but if you look closer at it, the badness in these numbers—it's all from the disastrous winter period, right? So there's a website called Understat. I have a strained relationship with them because they're not very transparent about where their data comes from. I've seen their XG differ from some of the more respectable uh, data providers, so I don't fully trust them. But they do have this user interface that's so useful. Like they let you very easily select a portion of games uh, during the season and look at numbers from those games. So if you want to know who did what in the first 10 games of the season, the last 10, just any random period, that's super easy to do. And when you're writing like betting previews and stuff, that's really interesting. So I do kind of look at their website, but their XG numbers, I take them with a pinch of salt and so should you. Still, using that very handy function of theirs and setting the cutoff to the start of December, before December, Newcastle had the third lowest XG against in the league. Like, they were one of the best defensive teams in the league. Now, according to Opta, they're the fourth worst overall. I mean, I think we may have undersold, I think I may have undersold the sheer extent to which their defense just completely collapsed this winter. And, and, and the number is a little bit skewed by that one game against Liverpool where they conceded an XG of 7, which is just completely unheard of in a single game. And, and Eddie Howe, when he was asked about it, he pointed out, well, there were two penalties, and that kind of skews the numbers a bit. And that's true, but without the penalties, you still conceded an XG of over 5, which is still pretty awful. Anyway, uh, it wasn't just that one. I mean, if you look, like, single-game XG is a bit dicey, but just, let's just look at it. I mean, against Everton, they conceded an XG of 3.3, 3.8 against Spurs, 3.5 against Forest, 3.0 against City in the end. It was 4.4 away to PSG back in November. Like, all through the winter, they had these awful defensive performances. Like, really bad. And my hypothesis is still that it is because the playing style relies on aggression on energy, that their pressing game kind of collapsed a bit. Injuries, fixture list, yada, yada, yada. We've talked about it too much. But, of course, now we've had they've had a two-week break, so they should be fresh again, no? So, Fulham in the Cup this weekend... You'd think the cup would be a big priority for them. Aston Villa away then on the 30th of January. That feels like a big game for Newcastle and for Eddie Howe. And they then have a helpful run of, of Luton and, and Nottingham Forest. So that should be that should be kind of okay. Uh, and But still, they really need to demonstrate that they can snap out of this funk defensively and actually defend in a vaguely coherent way. Because what they've done on the, over the winter has been even worse than I really realized. Which which does actually bring us to the Trippier thing. Like, that's a bit weird, isn't it? He, he's he's almost been like the standard bearer for them. Yes, he's had a dip in form recently. A lot of players in that club has. But a couple of months ago, you'd say he's probably their most important player, right? Him and Bruno in, in midfield. And now he's linked with Bayern Munich. Club does not appear to be denying those rumors, which is interesting. Uh, suggestion is that Newcastle may have some real FFP problems or uh, PSR, is it? Profit and sustainability rules? Problems? And, it can, and according to the local uh, paper, The Chronicle, selling Trippier could take as much as 10 million a year off their wage bill. Wow. Uh, that, well, I mean, it makes more sense then if you can get a little bit of money for him and take 10 million off the wage bill. That, that, that means Trippier is on close to 200 grand a week. <laughs> That's, it's a, he's another one who said that money wasn't a factor, you know? He, I see he told, I found some quotes here. He told the True Geordie podcast that his move from Atletico Madrid, uh, he said, I know my reasons why I came back, and money wasn't one of them. He also said, I know my reasons why I came back, 
to live in the north for my family and of course for the project as well I spoke to the managers the owners about the direction they want the club to go in and it's exciting for me it was a no-brainer to come back to England now first of all I'm very sad for the club here because when these things emerge it's always unfortunate like Newcastle are paying almost 200 grand a week for a 33 year old right back and it turns out he wasn't motivated by money they didn't have they could have paid him so much less and he would still have come like what a mistake if they paid him half they, you know, he would still be there because it wasn't about money for him, uh, he says. So, um, you know, I do wonder what's going on there. I'm going to actually rein in the sarcasm because the more I think about it, he was excited about moving back to the UK. I buy that. Uh, I think his wife has spoken about finding it very hard in Madrid. Now his kind of form has collapsed and he's reportedly considering moving abroad again. You wonder what's going on there. Uh, maybe he just wants to hang out with Harry Kane and Eric Dyer. And 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 that that'll that that'll, that'll be fun. I mean, maybe who who doesn't want to play for Bayern Munich a bit at the end of their career? You you can see how that works. The whole thing seems very odd. Maybe they have FFP problems. But, you know, do they not have some squad players they could sell? Like losing Trippier seems like a big thing. Anyway, would be nice for him if he goes to the Bundesliga and uh, eventually wins it. If he wins the Bundesliga with Bayern, that will mean he's won both La Liga and the Bundesliga, which is kind of cool for an English player. They, they they don't always, you know, go abroad and do that sort of stuff. Anyway, this is a strange pod, isn't it? It's a lot of me just riding hobby horses around the place. I think this is this pod this episode is the best example ever why we need Peter on this podcast occasionally. Just kind of rein me in. Uh, well, what else happened at the weekend? Uh Liverpool were good, second half at least against Bournemouth, still top of the table. Um with their current results, Liverpool are on track for an 86-point season, which is usually enough to win you the league, and unless Manchester City does something crazy. Now, the oddity here remains that as much as they've been brilliant, they do still feel like a bit of a work in progress. There's there's a couple of positions where I don't think we know with 100% certainty who the starter is. You know, if, if Liverpool were playing a Champions League final tomorrow, who, who would be starting? I'm not sure we know 100%. But Klopp does have some really interesting options, both up front and in midfield, and we're seeing him kind of juggle them very, very successfully through injuries, but also in terms of changing games. I looked at this. If you look at just the first halves of games, Liverpool would be sixth. Like, they're sixth in the first half table. City are top, Spurs are second. Uh, But if we just look at second halves, if only the second halves counted, Liverpool are top. Which scans, like, we've seen a lot of Liverpool games where they've won it in the second half where Klopp has made changes and altered the flow of the game. Um, 11 out of 21 Liverpool games have been draws at half time, actually. So Klopp is really earning his coin in terms of making the changes that are needed when they're needed. In this game, we saw Jota come to the fore. We, we spoke about that before, that he adds this sort of finishing edge, very clinical player. But also Darwin! The magic eight ball of Darwin landed on great finisher for one day. He remains a baffling player, but I'm a believer. I I, I can totally see why Liverpool fans adore him because the work he puts in. He doesn't seem to be phased by anything. He's so energetic. And also, you know what? He's on seven goals and six assists from 13 starts. Seven off the bench, sure, but, you know, not that many minutes. If we look at uh, goals and assists per 90 minutes on the pitch... Uh, he, he he's at close to an average of one, a goal or an assist per 90 minutes on the pitch, pretty much. Uh, again, looking at our beloved FB Ref website, it's only Aling Holland, uh, Mo Salah and Diogo Jota who are over one, I guess in terms of uh, goals and assists per 90. Jota's sample size has to be pretty small, but he's over one. Do you know who's also over the one mark, the last player? Leon Bailey. Mm, another player I've always like mm, been a secret Leon Bailey truther. Anyway, uh, for all the misses and all the memeage 
uh, Darwin is right up there. He is he is causing things to happen and, and goals to be produced. And Liverpool are top of the table. So maybe the sort of clowning of Darwin Nunez... Isn't that what the young people say? The clowning. Maybe that needs to stop for a while. He's, he's actually doing doing some good things. You know who also did good things? Arsenal. Looked pretty straightforward for them. Kind of was. Palace were very bad. Uh, but, but the way uh, things have gone with them recently, I think a routine 5-0 win is just nothing to sniff at, really. And, and Martinelli getting two. That, I think, could be significant. As, as much as I like stats and numbers next year, I am a huge believer in the human factor here. I think confidence in particular is so important. can really transform players in one direction or another. And I think Martinelli's goals drying up has been a real issue for Arsenal this season. We've talked about this. Getting two here, hopefully that's kind of the start for, for him. That would be, be big for them. Um, looking ahead at the weekend now, it's the FA Cup again. The, the, the cup runneth over. Um... Well, I did enjoy uh, the replays the other week, I have to say. So maybe my cup fever is kind of starting to creep back. I don't know. Uh, it'll be a couple of days until I put a full betting preview out there. And early thoughts. I am really fascinated by this full of Newcastle tie for all the reasons we spoke about. In terms of Newcastle getting their groove back, I thought the first half against City was very promising. In terms of their energy and all of that, could be they've had some more rests. The, the, new, the real Newcastle will please stand up. I mean, that could definitely happen. But, you know, Fulham, not not bad at home this season. Nine wins and 13 at the Cottage in all competitions. Pretty strong. So I, I'm just kind of looking at over two and a half goals here. It's priced at 1.83 with bets on. I just think that's a little bit high. We don't know. Maybe all of Fulham's attackers get injured against Liverpool in midweek. I mean, that's a thing that theoretically could happen. But just looking at their last games in the league, Fulham have scored three at home against Wolves, five against Forest, five against West Ham. Then they drew a blank against Burnley, which was annoying for us. <laughs> For, bet, for betting column reasons. But then uh, they had two against Arsenal. So, okay, they were running a bit hot on the finishing there, definitely. But this is a team that can do stuff going forward. And we don't know that Newcastle have fixed their awful, awful defense this winter. I, I suspect the rest will have helped. We don't know it. And, of course, the other option is that Newcastle are back now and they're good because they've rested and they feel excited again and that they'll just turn up and run all over Fulham and, and, and put up over two and a half goals themselves. That could happen. Either way, I, I feel over over two and a half goals at one eighty three. That's a that's a decent that's a decent pickup this weekend. See what happens to that price as we get closer to the weekend. Suspect it might drop a little bit. Um it's, and it is a little bit higher than I thought it would be. Now whether it's a two one to one of the teams or, or Newcastle having a good game and covering it on their own, I don't know. But uh, I, I think we'll get goals. So I think that's one that's worth picking up. That's going to turn up on the betting column this week in some capacity. I expect. Treble landed this weekend. Ah, we've, uh, we've done all right this winter, generally speaking, with the selected singles. But we've had a bit of a drought with the boost of treble. i got to be honest. So it was nice to get that one uh, landed this weekend. Hope for more in the future. And I hope for more episodes of The Resort. And crucially, that you'll listen to them, because if not, it's kind of pointless. But uh, yeah, thank you for keeping me company yet again, and uh, talk to you soon. See you.